Hi everybody, welcome to the Tomorrow's Tune In Podcast. This is show number 8 for May 2008. I am your host, Chris Marshall, and again, I welcome you to the show. We're having a great time here at Tomorrow's on our third official podcast of the new season here. Today on the show, I've got a great conversation with Keith Dallas, who is the editor of the upcoming Flash Companion. So we're going to be talking everything Flash from Jay Garrick to Barry Allen to Wally West to even Bart Allen and even a bit of the rogues gallery and some pretty cool information that I didn't know uh, about Bart and Wally and uh, some other characters involved in the Flash mythos and history. So you want to stay tuned to that. But first, I want to thank everybody who came out to the New York Comic Con. Speaking for John Morrow and everybody at Tomorrow's Publishing, we had a wonderful time doing the panels, uh, meeting everybody at our table. Uh, Just great time. We expect to be back there next year. And over at the blog, John wrote up a nice little excerpt about what happened at the New York Comic Con and all the fun that he had there. So on behalf of all the editors... And everybody at Tomorrow's, we thank you very, very much for making it a wonderful success. And as far as where Tomorrow's is going to be at other conventions, I know you're asking that. Upcoming, we will be at Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 20th through the 22nd. Then we are also going to be the same weekend at BrickFest, which is the Lego convention in Chicago, Illinois. We move on to July in Comic-Con International, of course, in San Diego, California, for July 23rd through the 27th. And the Baltimore Comic-Con will round out our summer schedule from September 27th through the 28th. So if you're attending one of those cons, please stop by. We'd love to hear from you. Let's get to a little bit of the news coming out of tomorrow's publishing. And as it was debuted at the New York Comic-Con, the Curry 5.0 book is now out and available for you to purchase, but if you come by the Tomorrow's Publishing website at tomorrows.com, you can pre-order a limited edition hardcover of the book, and it is limited to 500 copies, and it's only $34.95. This book features all the original contents of the softcover version, but it has a full-color wrapped hardcover and an individually numbered extra Kirby art plate not included in the softcover edition. This hardcover is only available from Tomorrows.com. Also available, which we debuted at the New York Comic Con, Kirby Deities Limited Edition Portfolio. This is on sale at Tomorrows.com for only $19.95. Not sold in any stores, this is a remastered version of Jack Kirby's 1971 Disneyland Portfolio featuring 10 8.5 by 11 full-color plates in an illustrated envelope and is limited to just 200 copies. On April 9th through the 11th of 1971, God, I was only three months old, Jack Kirby was a guest at Disneyland Convention of Nostalgia, held at the Disneyland Hotel in Anaheim, California. For the event, Jack printed a limited edition portfolio of some of his 1960s concept drawings done while he was still working for Marvel Comics. The originals were inked by Don Heck and Frank Giacoa, And, of course, Jack himself, and, of course, Jack also hand-colored these plates. But due to budget restraints, the portfolio's eight plates were printed in black and white only with no envelope. 
This remastered version has been renamed the Kirby Deities since the characters Jack created were all proposed gods in a new pantheon he was developing in his mind in the 1960s. Tomorrow's is proud to represent them in full color, including two color plates that weren't in the original 1971 version of the portfolio. The 9x12 black and white envelope art was inked by Mike Royer and was originally used on the mailing envelopes for Jack's 1971 Kirby Unleashed portfolio. For the big-time Kirby enthusiasts, no doubt. Also in the news, the Batcave Companion, which was scheduled to come out this June in time for the Dark Knight movie, has been pushed back to 2009. To read more about why this book was pushed back to 2009, I encourage you all to go over to the blog at tomorrows.com and read a letter from John Morrow. He explains it all. Let's move to the new releases coming out this May, and of course all dates are subject to change, so check them accordingly. And of course you can come by the website to check on all the dates. But uh, as of right now, coming out May 14th, Alter Ego number 77, which is on sale for a cover price of $6.95. And by the way, all these titles mentioned you can get 15% off if you purchase them through tomorrows.com. Alter Ego 77 features a Golden Age tour cover by Joe Kubert, and it's got the full legend of the St. John Publishing Company and the man behind it, Archer St. John. Plus, Jim Amosh interviews the Golden Age artist Tom Sawyer, and there's also other features on the Golden Age and Silver Ages of comics, including PC Hammerlinks, Fawcett Collectors of America section with Mark Swayze, C.C. Beck, and others. It is edited by Roy Thomas. Coming out May 21st, back issue number 28 for a cover price of $6.95. Back issue shakes down the dirty laundry of the men in tights in our heroes behaving badly issue. The Hulk and the Thing, why can't they just get along? Heavy-hitting interview subjects Herb Trimpey and Ron Wilson share their thoughts. We reopen the trial of the Flash, blow the lid off John Byrne's heroes who cross the line and duck for cover as Teen Titans Terra. Kid Miracle Man and Mark Shaw Manhunter all go bad. This is edited by Michael Yuri and features an all-new intoxicating cover by Darwin Cook himself. Coming out May 28th, another book for you Kirby enthusiasts out there, the Jack Kirby Checklist, the Gold Edition. This is going to retail for $14.95, but you can get it for 15% off through the site, of course. It is a 128-page trade paperback, and the caption is as follows, the most thorough listing of Jack Kirby's work ever published. Building on the 1998 Silver Edition, this new fully updated definitive gold edition compiles an additional decade's worth of corrections and additions by top historians in the all-new trade paperback format with premium paper for archival durability. It lists an exacting detail of every published comic featuring Kirby's work including dates, story titles, page counts, and inkers. It even cross-references reprints to help collectors locate less expensive versions of key Kirby issues and includes an extensive bibliography listing books, periodicals, portfolios, fanzines, posters, and other obscure pieces with Kirby's art, plus a detailed list of Jack's unpublished work as well. As a bonus, it now includes a complete listing of the over 5,000-page archive of Kirby's personal pencil art photocopies and scattered throughout the dozens of examples of rare and unseen Kirby art, making this a must-have item for the serious Kirby collectors 
and eBay shoppers. Moving on to May 29th, Brick Journal Compendium Volume 1, retailing for $39.95. This is a 256-page full-color trade paperback. Brick Journal Magazine is the ultimate resource for LEGO enthusiasts of all ages with this full-color book compiling the first three digital-only issues in printed form for the first time ever. This book is edited by Joe Minow. And finally, coming out May 28th, Modern Masters, Volume 17, we are going to feature Lee Weeks in this book. It's going to retail for $14.95. It is a 128-page trade paperback, and it is edited by Eric Nolan Wethington. Lee Weeks, of course, is the consummate storyteller, and he has worked on characters such as Daredevil, Captain America, Spider-Man, The Incredible Hulk, and even Batman. This book features an exhaustive look into Weeks' long career and creative process, and even has an interview including bonus art and many rare and unpublished pieces and a huge gallery of stunning artwork by this true modern master. I know our Modern Masters series has become a real bestseller for us, and we're really happy to present those each month. And this new volume featuring Lee Weeks just continues that wonderful tradition. And if you're wondering what the next Modern Masters will be, that is going to be volume 18, and we are going to be featuring John Romita Jr. So look for that coming out in July. But for right now, let's get to the interview I did with Keith Dallas and his Flash companion, and I'll talk to you on the flip. Let's uh, let's get in a little bit about your background and how you came to be at Tomorrow's Publishing as an editor. Well, I, I guess my preparation for being the Flash companion editor uh, results from my contributions to uh, SilverBulletComicBooks.com. Uh, I came across uh, Tomorrow's companion line uh, through I, I was writing reviews and columns for Silver Bullet comic books, and I came across uh, Glenn Cadigan's Legion Companion, which I loved. You know, like you, I, I think this, this companion line uh, is is a phenomenal resource. So really, so and, you know, I read the Legion Companion, you know, cover to cover, mm-hmm. and and really really uh, admired it. And from that, I, you know, I got the idea to well, if uh, if they can publish a Legion Companion, surely they they would be interested in publishing a Flash Companion, and I better pitch it quickly, otherwise I can imagine someone else is going to be pitching it. So I pitched I pitched John Morrow back in October 2006 after getting some really great advice from Glenn Cadigan. Uh, you know, he really helped me shape my proposal. And, you know, and, and at that point, I, I really the only experience I had was. Being the reviews editor of Silver Bullet comic books, I also have, um, I'm the writer creator of a comic book called Omega Chase, uh, which is being, for those who are interested, are, is being posted on, uh, you know, drunkduck.com. It could be found on Wowio, uh, for free download. So when I pitched it to John, uh, my concern was that John would say, well, who the hell are you, Keith Dallas, and why would I, you know, be bothered with, uh, you know, letting you edit a, a, you know, a companion book about a character as important as The Flash. And so I was, I was half expecting John to just discard my, my pitch to him, and I was half expecting him to tell me, 
well, the Flash Companion has already been pitched. You know, thank you for your interest. Uh, and and much to my surprise and and you know, and joy, he he said yes. And it was definitely one of those moments. You know, like I said, this was late October, early November, 2006, when. When John sent me the email accepting my my proposal, it was you know one of these moments of elation, and then followed immediately by ooh, what did I just get myself into? Because uh, you know here now I had to actually produce a 225 page book about the uh, writers and editors and artists uh, who have contributed to the Flash over the past you know. Seven decades. Right. Uh, so, I began to contact uh, various contributors, people who people who are familiar with, people who um, who I know were also fellow Flash fans, uh, as as well as um, you know accomplished writers, uh, and they they were a tremendous help. So, it, very much the, the Flash Companion very much is was a team effort, uh, and I, I'm really proud of of what we accomplished together uh as because we were we were supporting each other we were fact checking each other revising each other so it's the end result is is a much much better book than what I would have accomplished on my own and you go into all the the four major flashes including Jay and and Barry yep. Allen and Wally and Bart and yeah the, the yeah the book is basically broken up into five sections like you said, uh, Jay, Barry, Wally, Bart, and then there's a there's a Flash Rogue section which we can we can talk about later. I guess it's probably more important to or more appropriate to talk about the the four fastest men alive. We tried to as much as possible make each section of the Flash Companion each each Flash section uh, as as detailed as possible as representative as possible. Uh, while at the same time recognizing we only have 225 pages, you know, ideally uh, th- th- there's obviously plenty of material for a second Flash companion. Mm-hmm. There, there are, you know, unfortunately uh, writers and artists who had to be uh, left out just because we <laughs> we were running out of space. Well, there's so much history with the Flashes that. Each one, each one of those four could have their own book. I mean, really, exactly. I mean, with, with Jay, not only his own series, but also being in the Justice Society. I mean, he's been everywhere. It seems. And yeah, and, and that's one thing and, we note in that in that Jay Garrett section is is he was one of the most visible uh, DC superheroes of that golden age. He was he was in All Star Comics. He was in he had uh, he was in Flash Comics. Obviously, he was also in All Flash. He was in Comic Cavalcade. Uh, he was he was as you know omnipresent as you know Wolverine is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a Flash Quarterly too, wasn't there? Yes, yeah. uh, which which initially it was um, uh, all Flash Quarterly, okay. and then it was just all Flash. I think it went to uh, a bi-monthly. Okay. Well, let's start off with Jay and how the whole Flash history gets started with him and how. Uh, you know who created Flash? I mean Harry Lampert, of course. But, right. Uh, for those that don't know, but um, you know where did it, where did it all begin and how did it all begin? Well, it, it's you know at some meeting um, in uh, 1939, you know, at some DC meeting between uh, 
Shelly Mayer, editor Shelly Mayer, and uh, you know, and and Shelly Mayer, the, the Flash, the, the Jake Eric section starts out with a, a section on uh, Shelly Mayer, as he was he was such an important uh, creative force of DC Comics in those days, and so at some point, you know, it, it, it's a shame that that meeting wasn't whatever meeting occurred that created the Jay Garrett character uh, was never, you know, documented. Uh, but Jim Beard wrote the section on, on Shelley Mayer uh, and, and tried to uh, sort of hypothesize, you know, what went into the creation of uh, Jay Carrick. And, uh, you know, again, Shelley Mayer, the editor, Gardner Fox, uh, the writer, and Harry Lampert, the artist for the first two Jay Garrick appearances, um, soon to be followed after him, followed by E.E. Uh, e. Hibbard, mm-hmm. who uh, really is an underrated uh, Golden Age artist, if you, if you ask me. What's really, really fun about those Golden Age Flash adventures, and really all you have to do is buy the two Golden Age Flash uh, archives that DC Comics published, and you can see immediately how, quote-unquote, realistic Jay Garrick's adventures were because, uh, you know, he's the fastest man alive. He's, you know, as, and they, he was written as someone who could run from New York to California in a blink of an eye. So when you have that type of power, what chance do the, do the villains opposing you have? And, and, and that's sort of the, one of the fun things about reading those adventures is that the, the people, the, the, the villains that Jay Garrick opposed, they, they didn't have a chance. So Jay Garrick toys with them. Mm-hmm. You know, he, uh, he, he vibrates so quickly that he's invisible, so he pretends to be the villain's guilty conscience. Um, you know, it, it, and very much a lot of these adventures just descend into slapstick. And it's sort of it's a very different type of um, superhero story than than we're used to reading, especially today, where you know a typical superhero story unfolds. Supervillain shows up, kicks the snot out of the superhero. Superhero learns how to. You know, and many of the of the Barry Allen adventures, you know, unfold this way, where suddenly a new rogue appears in Central City. Barry Allen goes to, uh, you know, to confront him, and the rogue just knocks Barry Allen silly. Then Barry Allen come figures out how to defeat the rogue, and the story ends. Mm-hmm. And the Jay Garrick, at least the earliest Jay Garrick adventures, don't unfold that way at all. It's it's you know, and especially because he and he's not going up against supervillains. He's going up against. He's going up against embezzlers. He's going up against uh, insurance fraud. He's going up against racketeers, kidnappers. And he, he, these guys just have no chance against him. And he um, he toys with them. So it, it becomes you know some some pretty humorous stories. I think I remember there was, there was one story where um, uh, the villains were trying to fix a hockey game. So he gets on the ice and. You know, he's he's a one man team. He scores like ninety nine goals, and you know, in a matter of minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
so. And, and that's that, that's how a typical Jay Garrick, you know, adventure unfolded. Let's talk about one of the neat things you added in for Jay Garrick for this book, and that is that the lost adventure that you guys right. dug up. By the uh, late 40s, um, the superhero comic books were really falling out of favor um, amongst the reading public. A bunch of Jay Garrick adventures that uh, weren't published until much, much later in those uh, early 70s. A lot of them appeared in those early 70s flash books, you know, those like 100-page giants that would have, uh, you know, they would even reprint some like Johnny Quick uh, stories. So, yeah, we have a section, uh, John Wells, one of my contributors. John Wells, by the way, Mark Wade, he is um, one of uh, Mark Wade's uh, resources, one of one of his continuity resources, as well as uh, Kurt Busiek. He, you know, when, when Mark Wade and Kurt Busiek have some type of continuity question, they call up John Wells. Uh, and John Wells is... Uh, he is a, has an encyclopedic mind. It's just a, whatever question we threw out at him, he always had an answer to. So, appropriately, he wrote this section about the unpublished Golden Age Flash stories. Um, a lot of these, I mean, what they did is, this is back in 1949, and I think we figured out that there was there was at least five or seven Flash stories that had been finished but were were never published they were they were you know i mean the flash the golden age flash series ended with issue number 104 um but there were still um there were stories labeled all the way up until flash number 109 mm-hmm. so you still had at least you know five issues worth of of flash stories so he you know based on on things that we found over at the Heritage Auction uh, website, you know, he, he recounted some of the unpublished Flash stories that um, you know didn't make it, didn't see uh, didn't see print in the late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, I think it's really neat to uh, to read those today. I mean, that, when I was reading the uh, the PDF you sent over to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's something I I haven't seen, and I own the two Jay Garrick archives. Right. I'm like, oh, this is this is kind of cool reading this. This is really neat. Yeah. And then we move into let's move into Barry Allen's phase from 1956, and of course he gets his start in Showcase, right? The Silver Age revival, and then they do the renumbering starting with 105, which yep. I always thought was no other character had that. You know, when when Green Lantern was picked up, they they had a new number one, and everybody had a new number one except for for Barry. Yeah, I think the mentality, Julie Schwartz's mentality was that at the time, I mean, and it seems, uh, you know, antithetical to to what's, what goes on nowadays where it seems, you know, even DC and Marvel try to find any excuse they can to introduce a new number one issue. Mm-hmm. But uh, Julie Schwartz felt that um, if if a kid saw issue number 105 on the stands, he would assume that this is, this is a character who's been around for a while mm-hmm. uh, and therefore is, is here to stay, as opposed to, you know, because there were so many comic book publishers back then, uh, at all fighting for the same rack space, uh, you know, at the, 
at the local drugstore uh, that a number one issue wasn't necessarily enticing because you had no idea if there was going to be a number two issue. But an issue number 105, oh, wow, okay, well, this is, this is an established character. Let's, you know, this, this guy has some longevity. That's at least what Julie Schwartz's uh, mentality was. And he, and he did that also in the, uh, in the mid-'70s, if you remember, when All-Star Comics was renewed, when, right. the, when the Justice Society, they picked up the numbering, was it All-Star Comics number 58, I believe, was the, where they picked up the numbering where it had been left off in the early 50s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, again, it sort of, it does seem weird now in the 21st century well, because we see publishers introducing, you know, first issues left and right, canceling series, you know, and you've seen it with The Flash when mm-hmm. they stopped a Wally's series and then when Bart, began his series, you know, here's a new number one. Um, it's actually it was interesting when they when they went back to Wally that they continued his numbering instead of starting again with a new number one issue. But uh but yeah, I mean it's the the Barry Allen first appeared in in four showcase issues, you know, showcase number four being the most famous. And you know, DC had no idea. I mean, and, and and Showcase was their tryout book. You know, was okay. We introduced a character here. Let's see if it gets some fan reaction. Uh, if so, we'll give the character you know, his own title. And the the success, the popularity and success of 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 the Flashes of of the Barry Allen uh, appearance in Showcase Number Four was unprecedented. It really. It was astounding. It was a, it was a remarkable success, and they. So he appeared again, in oh I'm forgetting the number. I believe it was showcase number eight, um, where uh, again, very well, you know, sold very well, and he appeared two more times in showcase, and then finally, you know, as you noted. <clears throat> Got his own series with Flash number 105, mm-hmm. which was also the first appearance of the Mirror Master. Correct. Yes, that's right. One thing when I when I look at the parallels between Hal and Barry, uh, you know, both were kind of revived at the same time. Right. Um, but throughout Hal's career, um, and it's been a long one, just like Barry has. Uh, you know, Hal through his being Green Lantern and then Parallax and the Spectre and being back to Green Lantern. Since his revival in the late 1950s, 19, early 1960s, he's always been in the DC universe. Whereas Barry, as we know, uh, perished in Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1985. Right. But yet he's kind of been around. You know, he shows up in flashback issues in the Flasher or J- JLA issues. I mean, he's always kind of there as a ghost. Uh, I know he showed up as a ghost in Green Arrow one time. Right. You know. And for me, I'm 37, and even starting reading comic books in 1980 uh, as, a, as a boy, Wally West has always been my Flash. Yeah. Um, so do you find there's a generational gap between Wally and Barry? Uh, I mean, you know, because with Hal, Hal's always been the Green Lantern. He's always been around. But with Barry and, and Wally, there there's a definite difference, I think, between my age group and maybe somebody who's over 45 or in their 50s. I mean, Barry is their Flash. Right. Well, it's a, I mean, I'm 39, mm-hmm. 
Actually, no, actually, I'm sorry. I'm 38. <laughs> Soon to be 39. Uh, and I'm sort of torn between Barry and Wally. I, I think, in, in principle, I, I agree with what you're saying, probably because, uh, it, it, you know, it's been, you know, 20 years since, you know, 20 plus years mm-hmm. since, you know, Barry Allen died in, in crisis. Um, so a lot of the younger readers, um, you, know, you said you started reading comics in 1980. Yeah, I mean, I was more probably of a with like guy. maybe like New Teen Titans. Yeah, well, I grew up with that, and I I was more of a Marvel kid growing up. Okay, with Daredevil and Spider Man, but and but on the DC side, I mean, you know, but then Crisis happened, and then Barry was gone, and then Wally took over. Right. I'm like, oh, okay, here's here's my new Flash kind of thing. Oh, well, I could, I also could see you know with New Teen Titans obviously was with DC Comics, mm-hmm. you know, best selling title for for years oh, in, in the 80s. Oh, yeah. So I could see. How you know people starting to read conflicts in the '80s would be very would be more fond of Wally than Barry, and Barry always gets knocked as having a sort of a bland personality. Um, you know, especially you know these Silver Age and Bronze Age stories were more focused on plot than they were on character, mm-hmm. um, and Barry you know had this sort of perfect suburban. Uh, Life, you know, with, you know, the, 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 he was married, no kids, but he would come home, Iris would have dinner ready for him. Um, you know, it was interesting because, uh, you know, Iris started out as this, uh, you know, very much like in a Lois Lane type of, uh, mold. She was, she was a reporter. At, at some point, she, you know, she dropped that and just became sort of, you know, the, the housewife, occasionally going back to her reporting duties. It was so almost think, like a leave it to beaver type lifestyle, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I could 50s. see I could see why getting into the eighties why uh, well, I mean Iris died in the late seventies, but I could, I could I could see why readers in the late seventies, early eighties wouldn't wouldn't connect with that. Um but I mean one thing I stress in, in the Barry Allen section is the the turning point for him as a character and as, you know, in, in the title was the death of, of Iris Allen. Right. Um, it really remarkably changed the tone of the series. Um, and even readers at the time were complaining once Iris died and, and Barry was going through, you know, obviously a roller coaster of, of emotions. Uh, you know, there were, if you look at the letter columns, readers even complained that Bar- the title was changing Barry Allen into Peter Parker. Um, you know, with all of all the the things that he had to deal with. Uh, you know, prior to that, in typical '70s fashion, you you would have these self-contained stories, which I loved. I mean, I I grew up on the Carrie Bates, Irv Novick self-contained stories that were more focused on, say, science than they were on uh, the personalities of of the characters. Um, but Julie Schwartz was around the time of Superman the movie, Julie Schwartz was, his his assignments had been, his editorial assignments got shifted, you know, because obviously at that point he was a long-time Justice League editor, he was a long-time Flash editor, a long-time Green Lantern editor, and he solely became the Superman editor. He was, he was just the editor of the Superman books, and Ross Andrew... Uh, probably most famously known as, you know, the Amazing Spider-Man artist, 
he became the editor of the Flash, and he he really changed things up, uh, including, you know, the death of of Iris. Mm-hmm. So th- that I I mark the death of Iris as as a significant, not only a significant event in in Flash history, but also just the turning point in the Barry Allen series. Uh, the stories became more linked. Uh, eventually, it led to the whole trial of the Flash. Um, which, but in getting back to your original question, I think if if you look at the sales numbers of the Flash by the early '80s, it, it was really starting to to die. Um, it was really it was it was shedding readers uh, for whatever reason. Um, maybe maybe because by this point, Carmine Infantino had returned to the title. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe readers didn't find Carmine's artwork appealing anymore. Um, maybe readers didn't find the whole... I mean, th- this trial of the Flash storyline took well over two years mm-hmm. to conclude. Maybe readers found that too too long. Um, or, you know, the, the DC's most popular titles at the time were... Marv Wolfman and George Perez's Teen Titans, and uh, Paul Levitz and Keith Giffen's Legion of Superheroes. So it, it, it's, you know, I mean, and, and that was the decision to kill the Flash in Crisis was, uh, from from my research, was partially based upon the sales, that they felt that the, the Barry Allen character just could no longer um, appeal to 1980s readers. Um, now, what's interesting is when Wally got, even though sales on the Barry Allen Flash series was, you know, was was fading fast. Um, when Wally got his series, he had to, uh, you know, the, the legacy of Barry Allen was was almost stifling because there were there were so many readers saying, "When are you going to bring Barry back? When are you going to bring Barry back?" I mean, you still hear that today. When 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 is Barry Allen going to be back? But um, but thanks to, you know, Mark Wade, uh, I think there was that definitive return of Barry Allen story that was able to cement Wally as the Flash. Uh, so I think that's one reason why the younger generation, and also like you said, I mean, Barry would appear and say like JLA year one, or in in some flashbacks, but his uh, you know his visibility as a character certainly was not um, as um, how should we say compared to Hal Jordan. It, it, it just it just wasn't he was not as visible as compared to Hal Jordan even after you know Emerald Twilight. Mm-hmm. You know it's it's one thing with with Barry it seems and. You you hear this at conventions or message boards, which are you know it's it's not gospel by any means. Right. But you always see like the the diehard Barry Allen fan, and they say uh, we'd lo- we'd love to have Barry back, but not full time. Like they love when they when DC teases you with with the character and they bring him back for this appearance and whether it be a crisis you know panel or something like that or JLA right. Avengers, but. You know, and they love to see that, but but God forbid they bring Barry back from the dead full time. 
You know, so right. there's always that catch twenty two with the Barry Allen diehard fans. I think what I, I find that very amusing. Well, I know I know that diehard Barry fans they they they're actually sick of the teases. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, that's waiting. Too. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, and there is the uh, the concern. Okay, well, if you bring Barry Allen as a flash, now what do you do with Wally? Because right. I think Wally has. I mean, the, the fascinating thing about Wally for me is. Well, for one, he's sort of the anti-Peter Parker right. as a character. This guy, this is the luckiest character, the luckiest superhero in the, in the history of superheroes, perhaps. When you, when you think about the life he's led. I mean, you know, of course, he's had to deal with his trials and tribulations. He's had to deal with, with various tragedies. But he, he always ends up on top. He always ends up, you know, his, his life is um, near perfect right. when, you, when you think about it. And when you think about what he, you know, he grew up idolizing the Flash, and and then as you know, as a boy, he not only gets Flash's powers, he becomes Flash's sidekick. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> how you know that that's that's hitting the jackpot. Uh, you know, as a kid, and then he he becomes best friends with with Dick Grayson, Robin. He joins the new Teen Titans. He. Um, he assumes the mantle of his. Uh, he is the first. He is the first sidekick to assume uh, the mantle of his of his mentor, uh, which you know, as uh, you know, the William Mesner Loeb stories pointed out. Obviously, he he had a lot of insecurity about. It. He had a lot of you know, he had um, he he didn't feel he truly deserved the the honor of being the Flash, right. which which is one reason why he acted like such a jerk. Um, which was was funny. I mean, interviewing some of the various writers and and artists. You know, Greg LaRoque, when he switched from he he was the artist on Legion of Superheroes and he became the artist on The Flash. And he he said uh, one of the first questions he had for William Mesner Lopes, who was writing The Flash, he said, Greg LaRoque asked William Mesner Lopes, why why do you hate Wally? Why why is he acting like this? And Mesner Loeb's explained to him, you know, where he was taking the character that this was going to be a very sort of introspective um, take on the character about a guy who did, did not have, you know, was, was too insecure to handle the role of the Flash, was too much in awe of his mentor that he feel he didn't um, match up, um, and it, it very much reflected a lot of the. Professionals and a lot of the fans' attitudes towards Wally at that time. Right. Uh, Mark Wade has had a, a story that he recounts in the Flash Companion where he asked John Byrne. Uh, this is when um, Mark was uh, editor. He wasn't editing Flash, but he was. Uh, no, I think this is when when Mark first started writing the Flash, and he asked he he approached John Byrne in in the DC offices and asked John if if uh, he'd be interested in. In doing a you know a flash annual or a flash uh, special you know drawing and you know in some way drawing a story about the flash and John sort of very loudly and boisterously said yes I'm interested in drawing in drawing the flash when you bring back the real flash mm. you know and 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 Mark Wade said that was sort of a, a, a common reaction to Wally at that time was everybody was sort of waiting for the quote-unquote real Flash to return. And, and that's, you know, again, one reason why 
he and Brian Augustine came up with this return of the Barry Allen storyline was to once and for all say, you know, Wally is here to stay. Um, Wally is the Flash. You know, deal with it. <laughs> so, but he also, I mean, besides that, also, you know, Mark Wade uh, did a, a tremendous job giving Wally, you know, his own uh, personality, and it's one reason why you don't see, for the longest, longest time, why the Rogues don't appear in the Wally uh, in the Wally West series because they they were deliberately they were deliberately avoiding any of the Barry Allen trappings. Mm. So that's why they, they wanted Wally to have his own unique set of villains, which I would argue were, were, were not, most of them were not as compelling as the original rogues, but I understand why they would avoid the rogues, because otherwise all Wally is doing is just replicating Barry's adventures, right. and they were trying to figure out how to create Wally's adventures. I always felt Wally to be a very interesting character in those early issues. And I had, I had a chance to get bound editions of those early issues for Wally. And here was a guy, as a kid, as Kid Flash, you know, always carefree, always looking up to Barry, and always in the back of his head knowing that he was going to be Flash someday. Right. But then all of a sudden, crisis hits, Wally assumes the mantle because that's the right thing to do, and he is left with no direction. He is, right. He is a kid... And he is the father of a of a family that you know with with no help from above. And sure, there's the JLA that can help him along, but as you said, he was the first sidekick to assume a mantle. And maybe the JLA members didn't know how to treat Wally because they still looked at him as him right. as Kid Flash. Yeah, and there's you know over in uh, Justice League Europe, you know, a character like Ralph Dibney is constantly reminding Wally about how Barry did things. You know, right. and there's there's one issue where Wally finally just says to Ralph, "Enough! Mm-hmm. You know, you keep you keep bringing Wally, you keep bringing Barry in my, you know, you keep sticking Barry in my face. Enough! You know, and and which was I think a nice moment uh, in in that series. Well, that and, almost reflects what the readership was saying. It's like enough yes. with Barry. You know, leave me alone. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think and I think there is that that tension in in the Flash readership that you still see today. Mm-hmm. You know, there's um, you know, there, there, there are people like yourself, you know, you have a huge contingent of Wally fans. And, and I think that, that, is, that is a legitimate concern. You bring back Wally, uh, excuse me, you bring back Barry, so what does that mean? Do you kill off Wally? If, if, that's, if that's the, if, you know, and I think, I think many Barry fans would, would say that that is not the desired, uh, you know, conclusion to Wally West, you know, is, is when you bring back, if you bring back Barry, what do you do with Wally? Do you have sort of like with the Green Lantern Corps, do you have several characters running around in the Flash suit? Probably could work, you know. I mean, they do it with Green Lantern. There's several characters running around with a Green Lantern right. outfit on. Why can't you do it with the Flash? Um, so I hope if they bring back Barry that that is not <laughs> what they do, that, that they don't kill off Wally. I think that, that, would, be, that would be a travesty. Well, it, it, um, it'll almost become a running joke because of what happened after 52 with, you know, right. getting rid of Wally or getting, you know, making Barth a new Flash, you had to kill another Flash. And right. that becomes, you know, the pattern in which you don't want. I mean, right. I mean, I liked, I liked uh, Impulse just as much as the next guy. I loved him in, in Young Justice. I thought it was a wonderful right. series. 
Yep. But then with you know, and then when when Bart took over, it was kind of like the same thing. And maybe that's why that series didn't last too long. Or you know, maybe well, maybe that's what DC had in mind all along. You you'd have a better knowledge of that. Well, if you, I mean, Dan DeDio at the time said that that was the plan all along. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who would counter that. I I think Mark Wade has some very very strong opinions about what happened with Bart that we have in the Flash Companion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he refers to the Fastest Man Alive series as the most disastrous relaunch in DC Comics history. Could be, yeah. Based upon how well that first issue sold to where, you know, how quickly sales dropped, I think it was a critically reviled series. Um, one of my one of my disappointments with the Flash Companion, and, and maybe this is telling about the Fastest Man Alive series, is that no creator associated with the Fastest Man Alive series would speak to me on the record about it. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's telling. Yeah. Um, that I say that with well. I'll say I have a very long interview with Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo about the Flash television show, mm-hmm. and they're great guys. I mean, I really had a lot of fun talking to them about the Flash television show. Um, I'd love to meet them in person one day, uh, but when it when I asked them if I could if we could talk about the Fastest Man Alive, they just very politely just said, you know, we'd, we'd rather not talk about it. Uh, same thing with Ken Lashley, where initially. Ken Lashley said he would, he would he would like to talk about it, and then he changed his mind. Um, and so it's, you know, I think and it's one thing. I, you know, I don't I don't mention this in the book, but I'll say it for the podcast is that that's sort of my biggest disappointment with the with the book is that I couldn't get the creators of the Fastest Man Alive on record mm-hmm. for the book. But so. Take their absence as you will. <laughs> With a grain of salt, right. Yeah, and, and also, you know, as an indication of, of, of what happened. And again, but uh, I, Mark Wade had some, has some very strong opinions about that whole relaunch. Um, I'll, and, well, you know what? I'll, I'll tease readers with that. I think if, if you want to read Mark Wade's thoughts about that relaunch, uh, that's one reason to buy this book. Well, on, on my other podcast I do at Collected Comics Library, it's all about collected editions. And I'm still waiting for that, you know, the Fastest Man Alive trade paperback, but I don't know if we're ever going to see it due to how poorly the book sold. Right. So. And it actually, it's, you know, when you, when you look at the numbers, I mean, that first issue sold, uh, oh, I mean, it, sold it was well. something like 130000 I mean, it, it was, you know, one of the best-selling issues that DC had that year, mm-hmm. but it, it, it Sank like a stone. Mm-hmm. Sales, sales just you know really went into. But but still, um, I think they just was was just looking at that that downward trend, and they just said something's got to be done, and and someone came up with the decision to just to just kill him off. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know we could debate whether, and and of course sales went up once you know once once it got around that that Bart you know possibly will die. Uh, the sales went back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 
typically. But, yeah, I think that whole series um, probably was, wasn't uh, wasn't the best conceived. It wasn't the, uh, you know, I, 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 won't, I won't blame any specific person or people. I'll just say that I think uh, it, it could have been executed better or could have been, mm-hmm. I think it could have been uh, conceived better. What's interesting, to come back to a parallel to how Wally's series began, um, Mike Barron, you know, uh, you know, as you noted, Wally, for the, for the longest time, he was, he was depicted as, you know, very clean cut. Oh, you know, other people referred to him the way Marv Wolfman wrote him. He was sort of the, you know, the, the conservative Republican family man. And when Mike Barron began the Wally West, Flash series, he said he very deliberately wanted to tweak that depiction. So you had a very, a very self-centered Wally, a very uh, someone who acts like a, a you know a man who's acting like a typical twenty-year-old, you know, right. always with girls on his mind, uh, very very selfish. And he, you know, Mike Barron admits that you know one reason he and Mike Gold went. In that direction is because they they just did not were they were no longer compelled by the Wally West as Republican conservative depiction, mm-hmm. um, and very similar to how the Fastest Man Alive series was greeted, you know that, that those early Wally West issues, you know, readers had a lot of a lot of problems with that depiction. They they did not understand why, and and this is you know. And I remember I was just starting college when this series came out, and I actually sort of was very compelled by the depiction. I I, I actually enjoyed this because it was a, it was a different type of character than what you saw in a typical superhero book, and I think you know Baron succeeded in that in that sense. But reading the letter columns from those issues where you know people are a bit outraged that Wally would be behaving in this manner. Uh, and I also love the fact in that first issue, at the very end of the first issue, Wally wins the lottery. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, and, and as Mike Barron says in, in the interview that we, uh, that we print in the Flash Companion, he said, you know, it's, it's the ultimate irony. Here's, here's a boy, here's a young man who already has so much, and now he goes and wins the lottery. You know, it would be like Donald, Donald Trump winning Powerball, you know. <laughs> I mean, well, what is, you know. What else can what else can this kid get? Um, so, I, I, I you know I, I thought that was a nice touch on Baron's part. Let's uh, let's wrap the show up talking about the rogue section of the book real quick. My one of my favorite parts of, yes, of the mine book. Mine too. It you know Jim Beard who who contributes a lot to this book. He early on in in our planning of this book he. He contacted me and he said, you know, you, you got to have a rogues gallery. And, and my, my initial pitch to John didn't have a rogues gallery. You know, it had it just had the four sections on each of the uh, on each, each of the flashes. And I said, well, one one problem is that you know there's there's so many flash rogues. I mean, this is. You know, that's why some people ask me like, well, do you have like issue by if issue recaps in this book? And I say no because one, I mean, think about look about how many issues of the Flash there have been published. If I, 
if I just if I did an issue by issue recap, I, that's all the book would be. Yeah. So. Um, and similarly, I, I feel, you know, you can, there's so many places online where you can find an index of all the Flash issues. And that was my initial objection to a Flash rogues gallery. I said, I said, well, you know, Jim, there's, there's so many, you, you can go online and you can get these, you know, profiles of the rogues and, you know, I don't think it would be unique to the book. I know, I'm, I was also concerned, I didn't want these like, um, role-playing game data sheets, you know, where you, you see, uh, you know, strength, nine, power. You know, I, I didn't want some type of data sheet on, on, the, on the rogues. And I, I always feel, you know, these profiles, are, they're so dry, they're so, you know, there's, I don't, you know, there's no charm to them. So, so Jim said, hold on, let me write one, let me write a profile of Mr. Element, and Dr. Alchemy, who are, you know, as Flash fans know, they're the, they're the, they're the same person. Mm-hmm. And you tell me if you like it, and, and we'll take it from there. So he, he sends me, he, he writes it up, and he sends it to me, and it's, it's a hysterical profile. And, and this is the trick. It's, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. It, it pokes fun a little bit at some of the zany, you know, Silver Age aspects of the character, but at the same time, it's you know it's a very uh, accurate and informative uh, you know depiction of or you know description of the characters. And once he sent that, I said that's perfect. Let's go with that. And then we all, my contributors, and I all lined up to write these various um, profiles of the rogues, and, and we had we had a blast writing those. I'll tell you that. I mean, I wrote. I personally wrote the one for Grodd and for Captain Boomerang, and and they actually, it's actually very time-consuming. I mean, each of these profiles are only a page or two pages long, but you have to condense so much, mm-hmm. um, and and also get the right tone, poke fun but not completely mock the character, and and so it it ends up being you know really these these wonderful challenges for each of us to write these profiles. But in the end, it's definitely one of the one of the things about the book that I'm that I'm most proud of. For for those of you who are familiar with the companion line, this is this is a book that 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 very much falls in line with uh, the type of companion books that that Tomorrow's has already published. You know, very much like I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll admit that I use Glenn Cadigan's Legion Companion and Titans Companion as as a model as a, as a template. So if you if you like what you read in Legion Companion and Titans Companion, I think you'll really like the Flash Companion. And for those of you who are not familiar with the, with uh, the Companion line, um, I think you'll you'll find that the, the Companion is um, I hope my Companion you'll find is is very informative uh, and it also tries to you know pay tribute to uh, each of the of the Flashes uh, as as appropriately as possible. Excellent. We'll look forward to that book coming out in July. Right. All right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> cool. It's all done. It's in DC's hands now, so, you know, keep your fingers crossed. I want to thank Keith Dallas for joining me on the show this month. And if you have questions or comments, come by tomorrows.com and click on the Tomorrow's TuneIn link over there on the right-hand side. And be sure to read John Morrow's blog. That is on the right-hand side as well. You can email me, Chris Marshall, at collectedcomicslibrary.com. 
And if you can, come by iTunes and leave us a nice review. Of course, all the information on tomorrow's publishing can be found at tomorrows.com, and all the show notes for all the podcasts are there as well. So until next month, everybody, go out and enjoy some comic books.